working on. But God, we, we pray that no matter what it is, that you would be glorified in it. Pray we wouldn't glorify ourselves and we wouldn't operate in our own strength. Uh, and I pray that not only for our church, but also Pastor Scott as he's traveling around. Lord, I pray that we would rely on your Holy Spirit. Almighty God, on this day, through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, you revealed the way of eternal life to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So we ask that you would pour out this gift anew, that through the preaching of the gospel of salvation, it would reach the ends of the earth. We pray for that through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to begin. Uh, while Pastor Scott is gone, I, he's given me the opportunity to preach three messages. Not three in a row. There's two in a row, not three in a row. But, but three messages. And my goal will be to walk us through Hebrews 12 in the times that I will be preaching to you today. You know, Hebrews is such an interesting book. I'm not sure if you've had this opportunity to really read into it, dive into it. It's an interesting book. We don't really know who wrote it. We have some good thoughts, but there's some debate on that. Some say it was the Apostle Paul. There are some great arguments that it was Apollos or perhaps Luke or even Clement or Barnabas even. But what we do know about the book of Hebrews is that it has an extremely high Christology. Christ is presented as greater, bigger, and better than all things on the earth. It was definitely written by someone who knew classical Greek very well. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews was a sermon to be preached to a congregation of people. So who is this congregation? Again, we're not really sure because it doesn't really say. But a lot of good indications point toward that it was written to Jewish Christians, probably a Jewish and Gentile mix, but primarily Jewish Christians in the city of Rome itself. And so throughout this book, the author presses on his readers and hearers, I should say, because of the temptations that they were about to face. The specific temptation they faced was to revert back to the old covenant, the old Judaic system, which has found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Much of them were danger of giving up what God had called them to do and who to be. Some were peeling away and forsaking the assembly with other believers. Others were falling by the wayside because they really weren't true believers in Jesus Christ at all. He urges them because of these temptations to endure and persevere through whatever sufferings or hardships that they would face as a result of their confession in Jesus Christ. And this is the church at Rome. Did Rome face persecution? Absolutely, and often intensely. But there was that temptation in the midst of their hardships to turn away from their faith, which is why Hebrews points to Christ and say, he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Mosaic system because it was all pointing to him in the first place. Why go back when it's now obsolete? Because it's found its fulfillment in Christ. Now to sum it up in a different way, the book of Hebrews is about what it means to walk the Christian life. What it means to keep going as a Christian. What it means to face Monday 
through Saturday in light of what we learn on Sunday. Now, we, we don't really have time to give a lot of context to walk through the entirety of this, this masterfully crafted sermon, but a little context to this particular passage is in order. Starting with Hebrews 3 and verse 14, the author begins a series of statements that cut across much of what I would call a passive approach to Christianity. The writer to Hebrews reminds his readers that those who have come to share in Jesus Christ can know that their salvation in Christ is true if you hold firmly to the end. In other words, the grounding of the Christian life is in the work of Jesus and that the evidence of your faith in Christ will be seen in the continuation of that faith if you endure. Now, just to reassure you that our endurance is never perfect, there are times that you will feel less stamina than others. Can anyone say amen to that? But in the end, our endurance is rooted in the power of God. No more to that as we move forward. But the picture that the author presents is one that you and I need to be reminded of again and again. And the image, the metaphor, the picture is that of an athlete, a runner. You're an athlete if you're here by Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Has anyone accused you of ever being an athlete? Some of you, yes. Most of you are like, never. <laughs> you are a spiritual athlete in the kingdom of heaven. We can't be passive because athletes perform their athletic duties. Runners run. We can't be complacent. We've got to be in the race, and we've got to pursue holiness with all of the might and grace and power of God. Now, this... This metaphor of running a race and being a runner is all over the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says that, uh, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run to win, and that we run for an incorruptible prize? Philippians 3 says, Forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward. It's that sense of running, pressing forward to what lies ahead. We press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 4 Paul says, I have run the race. This is toward the end of his life. I have run the race. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. I think too often the church has held, been held captive to a Jesus take the wheel theology. Like Christ is the head of some big cruise ship and he's steering us somewhere and we're just lying on the deck. No, the image that is given to us here in Hebrews is the image of the runner, the athlete. And I want to focus and dwell upon that. If you're born again, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in the race. You are the athlete. You are in a spiritual race for your life. Well, how does one run? How does one run this race of faith? Well, there's... Four simple strategies that really come out of this text that help us to successfully run the race of faith. And it was interesting because while I was preparing this, this sermon, I was Googling runners and what do runners have to do in order to, to run well. And it, like every single website, it said tips and strategies for running, tips for beginning runners, tips for running a marathon. Well, here the scripture gives us four tips or strategies to successfully run the race of faith. Well, let's start 
with verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The first strategy here in the scriptures is that motivation gives you the desire to run the race. We see that the very first line, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like a coliseum. Sounds like a stadium. You see this this image that, that he's writing, that he's drawing upon for the people of Hebrews, it was a pretty common thing. And they would have known right away, would have painted a picture in their mind. And in the Greek culture across the world, it was called Hellenism. And so in the Pan-Hellenic uh, Hellenic Games, they had a pentathlon. And the running was the very first event. And it was also the longest event. And so the image that he paints for us is being in some kind of a stadium or perhaps for the church at Rome, they would have thought the Colosseum more than just persecution going on in the Colosseum. There were games in there as well. It's an athletic stadium, a Colosseum, and those who have already run the race before us have finished their course, have now ascended into the stadium of heaven, are looking upon us as we run the race. That's kind of the image that I see coming from this passage. So great a cloud of witnesses. They're standing on their feet. And by their examples, they are cheering us on and screaming for us. Have you ever been in a stadium, an actual stadium? I love watching sports on TV, but there's nothing like actually going to a stadium. Now, I will say this, and you will probably chase me out of the pulpit, but I'm a Jaguars fan. And I watch the Jaguars when they, you know, choose to air it on TV, although they're airing it more often lately. You know, praise the Lord for that. But there was nothing compared to actually being in the Jag stadium. The energy, the excitement, the enthusiasm that you have when there's people all in these stands screaming out for the home team. It's nothing like in the world. I mean, sometimes even if you're on TV and you see the crowds a little subdued, players are out there throwing their hands up. They want that energy. They want that cheering. It just gives extra excitement and motivation, wind in their sails, so to speak, to propel them to do far more than what they would have done otherwise. This is the picture that's being painted for us here in Hebrews chapter one, or chapter 12 in verse 1. Now, I don't want you to think that there are people staring down at us from heaven. I would hate to think that my grandmother in heaven is looking down upon me and watching me make every bonehead decision that I've ever made. Wouldn't be much of a heaven for her to see that. But they are cheering us on in the sense of the examples that they leave for us. You see, the first word in that verse is therefore. Therefore links us to this previous chapter, chapter 11. And if you know chapter 11, it's God's hall of fame. It's the hall of faith. The entire chapter is a testimony of believers who have run the race in the Old Testament. They've run in the face of enormous difficulty faced enormous obstacles, but they pressed on and now find themselves in this great cloud of witnesses. Cloud, I love that, that word. It's a common metaphor. Talk about a very large group of people, but taking cloud with witnesses together in classical Greek language, it means great in number, 
but also great in the quality of their faith as well. Now, time obviously doesn't permit us to be able to go through chapter 11 line by line. But I love that they provide these examples here in 11. Because when you think that you can't run the race, the obstacles are too great. Maybe you're spiritually exhausted. Noah kind of steps in. Noah says to us, you feel like you're the only one that's a believer in your home or your family or your job. Let me tell you about what it's like to be alone. I was the only one. That's alone, what you think? I was the only one. I pressed on. It did something that the world just mocked me for. God said, build a boat on dry land. And so he's building this boat. He says, this is what it is like to have faith. You press on. Abraham comes along and he says, I can tell you what it's like for God to put you on a journey and you have no idea where the destination is. Maybe you feel like God's got me going somewhere and I have no clue what he's doing in my life. I wish he would just tell me something. Sometimes we feel that way. Abraham comes around and says, I know exactly how you feel. He called me out of Ur of the Chaldees and he said, start walking. I'll let you know when you get there paraphrasing a little bit he didn't tell me how this was all going to work out it's not important that we know all the details he would say but he put his faith in God and let God lead him every step of the way was it hard absolutely <clears throat> excuse me it was hard absolutely but all that's important is that God knows where to go and I can assure you that God knows someone else as well maybe some of you might think that perhaps you've sinned too much for God to use to run this race or maybe some of you might say you're too old to be used by God well then Moses steps out of that group in Hebrews 11 he says I was a murderer and yet God still used me not only that but I was 80 years old before God decided to use me before he called me at the burning bush. My whole life had been preparation for this one moment in time. The 40 years that I spent in the wilderness tending sheep was simply to build humility and meekness in myself so I could finally be a tool that God could actually use. There's more than just listed in 11. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. Think about Joshua crossing the, the Jordan River. Think even to, to people, heroes of the faith in church history. One movie that I like to, to watch every so often was the, the Martin Luther movie. I just really love that movie. Why? Because it inspires me. You have this, this nobody, basically, struggling on what it means to be justified by faith, seeing the church going way off the path of where God wanted it to be in the scriptures and standing up to intense persecution and obstacles. It's inspiring. That's the point here from these passages. That God gives us these examples to motivate us. Christ puts us in the race. The crowds cheer us on and give us desire. Wind in our sails. Now, what I really love about, Rome, or about Hebrews chapter 11 is it doesn't list the sins that these people committed. Because we know Moses was flawed. We know Abraham was very flawed. They all sinned. They all fell short of God's glory. But yet, God doesn't record those things because they were looking to Christ to save their souls. 
It's all about the motivation. That's why we need to look at it. You know, have you ever, anybody been in a Greek Orthodox church? We had one down where I used to live, and they had the Greek festival. That was, that was my time to go into a Greek Orthodox church because the baklava and they had all that other kind of stuff. It's really good. A lot of good food and fun. And they would let you take a tour of their church and their sanctuary. And, and they all have these domes, right, on the top of the church. And inside the rotunda, they have the apostles, like, painted all around. And they're, like, looking down on you. And, you know, at times I think, are they judging me? You know, it's, but it's just to kind of give you that sense that there's these folks that came before us that are cheering you on. When I was in the Army, I had the opportunity to go to air assault school. And... It was a grueling kind of thing. The ten, I was at Fort Bragg, and the 10th Mountain Division cadre came down to kind of put this school on. And there's only a limited number of spots, and everybody, the brother, wanted to be in this because you wanted the wings, of course, on your chest. And so they had to weed you out. And so the first day, you show up at like 3.30 in the morning for an inspection. They had to inspect all of your gear to make sure you had absolutely everything and that it was in serviceable, perfect order, checking your uniform, the whole thing. And all the while, they're smoking you, making you do push-ups, making you do all kinds of arm raises, making you do leg raises. They're, they're just putting you to muscle failure through this whole thing. And then when you pass through that, you go to the obstacle course. And there were a few obstacles that were mandatory or you were insta-fail. And one of them was climbing a 30-foot rope. I could do a lot of things. So climbing a rope was hit or miss for me. I, I, I did well in PT, but climbing a rope was rough. And you can talk to my wife. I went and practiced that thing. And about 50% of the time, I got all the way up 30 feet on this rope. Well, here I am smoked at muscle failure in this obstacle course. I get to the rope event. I'm like, I got to make this thing. I get up that rope, and as soon as I jump up and grab that rope, I heard, gee, Quinter, you better get up that rope. And I looked over. There was my company commander and my first sergeant staring at me. And they were cheering me on. I thought, there's no way that I'm not getting up this rope because they're staring at me and cheering me on. This is the image that the author of Hebrews gives us. By the example of their life, they bear witness and testify to us that if you run by faith, you will win this race. They did. They present example after example of men and women who face difficult times when others are bailing out. Others are falling by the wayside, yet they maintained the course and pressed onward to the upward call of God with endurance. Christian, don't pull up short of the finish line. How sad would it be that the finish line is in view and you just give up? Widen your stride. Pick up the pace. Don't listen to your flesh or the devil. Don't buy into the slowdown. You can't go any farther. Do you need to be motivated in your Christian walk with Christ? Look to the cloud of witnesses. Hear through their example, them cheering you on and pushing you forward to God. Who needs to be your go-to person in the Old Testament that you can look to again and again and draw encouragement? They are there as examples to us. They give us that motivation, which gives us the desire to run the race. Well, the second strategy is that preparation makes you ready to run the race. Second part of verse 1 says, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Any runner needs to prepare. Isn't that true? 
And because of your faith in Christ, you're now a runner. The crowds are cheering you on. You're fully motivated, but you still need something vital. What do you need? Training, preparation. Every runner does it. You just don't decide one day, man, I saw it on TV. I'm so juiced up for this New York marathon. And you just show up one day. Say, yeah, I'm going to do this. You'd be a fool. Runners will spend years of training on this thing, building up their cardio, eating special diets, even working on their running gait, their stance and how they run, the mechanics. This is what this verse is saying. We need to lay aside every encumbrance. Now, to the, to the readers or the listeners of this passage who are in the middle of Pan-Hellenic games, they would have understood what lay aside every encumbrance means. Because in these Greek games, they ran naked. They performed completely naked. They took all their clothes off and they ran. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Be a little odd. But the point of laying aside every encumbrance is the image of taking off that robe, that cloth, and putting it aside. Why? It encumbers you. It holds you back. It creates resistance on your run. Lay it aside. Look at athletic clothing today. Compare athletic clothing today to, say, 50 years ago. What a marked change. They're getting lighter. They become form-fitting. They're streamlined. They're designed to reduce wind resistance. Even, even swimmers, what do they do? They shave all their body hair. Why? Because even the body hair will slow them down in the water. Anything that would handicap the runner was to be laid aside so they can perform at peak efficiency. But the scripture also says the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, notice he didn't say sins. He said sin because he's using that word in a very general sense. Sin entangles us. It snares us. Let me give you some encouragement that because of the work of Christ and what he's done in our lives, sin doesn't put us out of the race. Amen? We're still in the race. But the sin slows us down and tries to stop us from running and pushing forward. Lay that sin aside because it snares you. It keeps you from running. It's deceitful. All sin is deceitful. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, it talks about this deceitfulness of sin. How is it deceitful? It tries to promise you something that it can't deliver or won't deliver. And you get caught up on it. It slows you down. Your eyes are off of running, and now our eyes are on the new and latest shiny thing. So what's the analogy that this author is drawing from here? Anything that would interfere with your commitment to Jesus, we have got to put it aside. What interferes with our commitment? Perhaps it's the love of wealth. Is money wrong inherently? No, of course not. Jesus didn't say money is the root of all evil. He said what? The love of money is the root of all evil. It's a preoccupation. Perhaps our love for wealth is holding us back. Attachment to the world. The desire to accumulate worldly things, a preoccupation with worldly pursuits, perhaps the need for self-importance, anything that interferes with the race to slow us down. You divest yourself of all those things. Now, I've taught here 
a class called Finding the Will of God for Your Life. And, and I've had a lot of people come and counsel, counsel with me about that. I, I want to know what God's will is for my life. And oftentimes, well, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, when people ask that question, usually it's, what job should I take? Or who should I marry? Or what house should I buy or not buy? The big, big questions, right? And I can't tell them what is God's will for life and those things. But so often we forget that there are other things that God has called us to his will. Holiness, righteousness, living in purity of the word of God. And here he's saying we've got to lay that all aside. What do you need to lay aside today? What is holding you back? I would submit to you, don't think about it, just do it. Get rid of it. You don't need to pray about it. If it's holding your back from commitment to Jesus Christ, then you need to get rid of it and get rid of it fast. Because it will slow you down. It will keep you from running that race. We have to divest ourselves of all of these things. It's the will of God for you. Sometimes we justify it too. Sin is so deceitful. I'll think, well, it's not really interfering with my commitment to Jesus. Is it? Think about it. Does it keep you from church on Sunday mornings or Wednesday evenings even? Does it keep your children from coming to services on Wednesday nights even? Does it, does it preoccupy your attention and your thoughts to a degree that you have no time left for Bible reading? No time left for prayer. And you're so exhausted by the end of the day, even if you had time, you're just going to sleep and crash. Are these things holding you back from running this race? So often, we just come to, we come to the Lord prayer, we come to pastors, and we're like, I just don't have any spiritual motivation. I don't have any spiritual energy. I just feel like I'm stuck in a rut in my faith. My faith, I'm just running like I'm in quicksand. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not getting anywhere. Well, let's start taking inventory of things. And you might find that there are encumbrances in your life. That there are sins that are threatening to snare you, grabbing, as it were, at your feet to keep you from finishing this race. And really, we're going to get to this in a moment. Christ is at that finish line. We have to cross that finish line. And sin is threatening to hold us back from that. What joy would we receive if we would just lay aside these encumbrances? That we just push forward with all of our might and say, yeah, I might not. And getting rid of stuff like pruning our own lives away does hurt, doesn't it? Sometimes we don't want to give up these things in our life. But we do it by faith. You will experience a joy like no other because now you can get back up and start running again. Now you're hearing the crowd of witnesses cheering you on through your example. And then you become part of the great cloud of witnesses, perhaps for one another here in this place. What do you need to lay aside? I guarantee you there's something. Take inventory. Ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to it because we can become blind to it. And when we're talking about sin, we're talking about idols in our hearts. And oftentimes, we don't eliminate idols. We just cover one idol with another idol. I don't like this what idols doing in my life, and so I find another idol that takes preeminence over that one. And our hearts, as, as the men of old would say, are idol factories. And they're so deceitful because they try to convince you that they're not idols. They're just regular concerns. We need worldly things. You need money to survive. 
Don't make too much out of this. And meanwhile, your faith is stagnating. You're not racing anymore. You're just sitting down on the track wondering why. Take inventory. Lay it aside. Run the race. Well, the third strategy in running the race of faith is determination keeps you running the race. Determination keeps you running the race. Let's look at the third part of verse 1. Let us run with, what's that word? Endurance, the race that is set before us. And using this athletic metaphor, he calls on them to endure. He uses that word endurance. And endurance is probably the most important word in, for the Christian life. It leaps off the page. It's found here in verse 1 where he says, let us run with endurance. He realizes that many people start well. Not many finish well. And in the Christian life, how you start doesn't really matter as much. It's how you finish that matters. And the only way that you finish well is if you develop endurance inside of yourself. Now, what does endurance imply? It implies the long haul, doesn't it? I mean, the Christian life, anyone can sprint in the Christian life for a short, a short sprint. Anyone can serve the Lord, carry out the will of God for an abbreviated period of time. Anybody could do that. But the reality of what Christ is doing in a person's life is demonstrated by how they live over the long haul. And that's really important from a pastoral sense as well. From a sprint, sometimes we don't sprint well. And so we get upset with ourselves and we beat ourselves up over these sins that are encumbrancing ourselves. When you really need to look at the long haul of your life. Sometimes God is working out sin in your life that you weren't interested in at the moment. Maybe you think your primary sin that needs to be eliminated from your life is one thing, but God is working on another thing in your life. Has anybody experienced that? Maybe it's a short temper, road rage, you know, whatever that it is. I need the Lord to really work in my heart there. And it doesn't seem you get a lot of traction and you're really struggling with that sin and you're working on it, but you're struggling. But yet God is working on other things in your life too. Because God takes the long view of your life, not the sprint of your life. Keep running. Keep going. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's really true. It's not a sprint. It's what? A marathon. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Now, the word endurance is what the author of Hebrews underscores for these early believers. And I think we need to make sure that word is in our vocabulary. It needs to be chiseled into our hearts. We are called to be believers of great endurance. Endurance is staying power, isn't it? Keeps you running. Now, when I was in the military, I wasn't much of a sprinter. But you could put me on a long distance and I'd do okay. I'd find my pace. I'd control my breathing. That's what endurance was all about. It's the power to continue in the path that God has placed you. You can withstand hardship and difficulty. You can press on in a situation that is unpleasant or prolonged. What's going on in your life right now that's unpleasant? and prolonged, and you wish it would end, and it just doesn't end. Last time I was up here preaching, I said, do you feel like you're in the tunnel and you can't find the light at the end of the tunnel? 
and you're just sick of being in the tunnel. What's going on in your life right now that's prolonged and you wish that it would end? Well, this is the race that's in front of you. Take inventory. Get your motivation from the pages of Scripture. Start laying aside encumbrances and asking the Lord to reveal sin to eliminate your heart. But then get back up, dip your head down, and press forward. For those who have ever run for distance, understands the temptation to slow down and stop. doesn't matter how often you do it. There comes a time for any runner, even a serious, run, a, a serious runner, where the muscles start getting real tired or maybe start cramping a little. You're struggling with your breath control and your brain. My brain was always my worst enemy when I ran. And I know it's hard to imagine that I ever ran anywhere. But my brain would be my worst enemy. Stop. Stop. Slow down. Stop. No, you can't do this anymore. Not another hill. Nope, you're not going up another hill, Brian. My brain would tell me those kinds of things. But you've got to learn to push these things aside. And your flesh and Satan does that to us every time. Those little whispers, you can't do it. Where's God? He's not helping you. You might as well just stop. Maybe you're on the wrong path. Yeah, that's it. God's, you're not on God's path for your life. These little thoughts encroach in your spiritual life. Put them aside. Get into the pages of Scripture. Get with the encouragement of the fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and push forward. That's what endurance is. The reality of one's faith in large measure is found in that word endurance. Real faith doesn't throw in the towel. You might be ready to throw in the towel. You might be like, just throw it. But faith doesn't do it. You know, the author uses the example coming up here in, in verses 2 and 3, which we'll spend a little more time on here in just a moment. But he uses the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. That greatest example of endurance in the will of God, in the work of God, was Christ Jesus if we're to be like Christ, and that's what this race really is all about, then we must endure like Christ endured. And I can hear the author of Hebrews screaming out to his listeners, don't drop out. Cross the finish line. You've got this. Despite the hardship, despite the exhaustion, the pain, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't listen to your flesh who says you're not good enough. You know why? Because by faith, we've already won this race. It's what Christ has done for us. I mean, we're running. We have bodies. It's not just a metaphysical kind of thing. We do run this race, but God will get you over the finish line by faith. Just run. This is why he starts out with the great cloud of witnesses. He looks back at the heroes of the faith. He can see their, we can all read it ourselves, their intense perseverance in the faith. Their unwavering fidelity should encourage us and motivate us. Now, we may slow down a little, and that's okay. Because, you know, the good thing about this race is that we're not competing against each other. It's not who gets to cross the finish line first. Is it Pastor Scott? Or is it you? Or is it you? Now, this is your race that you're on. We don't compete with each other. 
So if you slow down a little, that's okay to catch your breath. There are times in your life that God will cause you to slow down. God will put hardship in your path, trials that you walk through. These things will slow you down naturally, but you don't stop. You keep going. You keep pushing forward. Back when I told you that I was climbing that rope, about halfway up the rope, my muscles like, mm -mm, no, nah, not today. The brain is like, are you kidding me? You're already a muscle fan. There's always so much I can do. <laughs> but when I heard them scream, Giaquino, you better get up that rope. Man, I didn't think about anything. All the thoughts got pushed aside. And you know, despite the muscle fatigue I was experiencing, because I was smoked, I was at muscle failure, I got up the rope. And that's what this is all about. Climb that rope. Run that race. Finish your course. And you know how we can do this? We can be encouragers amongst ourselves. That's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves. We don't just come here to be consumers. Listen to some good music, listen to a sermon, and then we go home. We're here to do all of those things, but to encourage one another. Pray for one another. I love when I come into the sanctuary and I see little groups of people praying before service or even after service. That's what they're doing. Because there are times when you're doing great and you're clicking along on your race of faith and you see somebody struggling who's stumbling a little bit, slowing down. That's your chance to walk up to them, pray for them, weep with them if they're weeping, rejoice with them if they're rejoicing, encouraging them, push them forward a little bit so that they get back going again. That's what we do together. So we got the cloud of witnesses in, in Hebrews 11 and even in church history. But then we can take part in that encouragement together. Run the race. Don't give up. Well, the fourth strategy to running the race of faith is fixation empowers you to finish the race. Fixation empowers you to finish the race. It's really, I think this, it's two verses, two and three, are really the focal point of the entire passage. And, and I, isn't it interesting that he used that word fixation? Because most of the time we say fixation, you say it's a bad thing. You're just fixated. Well, it depends really what you're fixated on. So let's read verses 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, that, that Greek word, aparontes, it's the sense of, of turning away from other things and turning your gaze onto a fixed point. I guess the best way to describe this would be like my dog, Lily. She's a very energetic, year and a half old Labrador retriever. It's a lot of energy. And one thing that you'll see fixation, one of the things she loves to do is catch, play catch and retrieve. Obviously, she's a retriever. That's what she does. And man, when she gets the ball out and she knows we're about to play, she starts getting serious. She starts staring at that ball. And so we've, we've trained her because as soon as we let go of that ball, or even we throw the arm back, she starts running, right? So we had to train her. I'm about to run. You sit down right next to me. You don't retrieve that ball till I, till I release you, till you go do it. So we take that ball. Sometimes we put it on one of those big chuckets so we can throw it really far. And we throw that ball. She launches it, and she's shaking. And she's shaking and staring at that ball. 
I mean, nothing else exists. And we're trying to teach her a little bit. Hey, look at me. Look at me. I'll release you. And so she's like, <laughs> you know, she's keeping her eyes on that ball. And as soon as we release her, go get it. She just takes off like lightning the entire time, her head down, staring at that ball until she pounces on it. Nothing else exists around her. A, a tornado can blow through the field and it would not phase her because nothing is stopping her from getting that ball because she was fixed like a laser on that ball. This is the sense of that word for fixing our eyes on Jesus. We are called to fixate on him like we're retrieving a ball. You stare at him. This appeal in this verse is for a concentrated attention that turns away from other distractions with eyes only for the person of Jesus. He says fixing our eyes on Jesus. Notice he didn't say Christ Jesus. He didn't say the Lord. Jesus, the very personal name. I really think that this is a call for us to focus on his humanity. I mean, God came and he added flesh to himself so he can run the race like we do, the race of faith. So we, we focus on his humanity, especially the pain, the humiliation, the disgrace of the cross. We focus on him like a laser. I mean, any time you're focused on a fixed point, it'll get you there much quicker than if your head's like all over the place. I mean, you're running in the one direction but you're going much slower. But when you're fixated on a point, you're going to get there much faster and more focused. That's the image. He calls Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Yes, we know that Jesus is the author of faith. He's the one that started it all. He's the one that opened the way of salvation. We know he's the perfecter of faith because he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. But to take author and perfecter, keep it in terms of the metaphor that's being used here. He's the champion of the race. He was victorious in the exercise of faith. The one who brought faith to completion. Um, Hebrews 6 and verse 20 calls Jesus the forerunner. I love that. He started the race properly. He started running it. And he's the one that did it well. He's the first to express unqualified, perfect obedience to the will of God and a fallen world. He's the perfecter and that Jesus is the one in whom faith reaches perfection. He's the author. He's the perfecter. Who else do you want to look at? If we're running this race of faith, why are we looking at anywhere else but the champion himself? Our eyes get so distracted on other things and they're so less when you stack it up to Jesus Christ, even the word less doesn't actually communicate it properly. It's just so hopelessly pathetic when you compare it to Jesus Christ. So he says you fix your eyes on Christ. See, the people of the Hebrews, the, the church of Rome perhaps, their eyes were fixed on a lot of stuff. Temptation, persecution, the lure to go back to the old covenant system of Judaism with its sacrificial system and, and everything they would do in the synagogues. and th Their eyes were on a million other things. And the author's like, no, fix it on Jesus. Be fixated. How did Jesus become this champion? He, it says right here, he, um, he who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, he renounced the joy that the world brings. 
Think of the temptations in the wilderness. What was the biggest and grandest? Satan laid all the nations of the earth in front of him, all those empires and kingdoms. And he said, if you just bow down to me, all of that could be yours. I think if any of us were in that temptation, that wilderness, whatever it is, I mean, 40 days not eating, temptation of bread, yeah, we're probably going to do it. Or, or toss myself off the top of the temple because you know God's going to save you. That'd be really awesome. Or how many of us would be lured by the temptation of being ruler over the kingdoms of the earth for just a simple bow? No, Jesus rejected that. He renounced it. And in fact, he found his joy in the race that he was called to run, the race to the cross. All of the hardship leading up to the cross, and it wasn't a picnic. Half of that stuff we would try to throw in the towel, but leading up to the cross and then going through that shame, that humiliation. Remember, that's what put us in the race in the first place. Christ Jesus bearing the pain and, the, and sin that was thrust upon him. It says he despised the shame. Isn't that interesting? He despised the shame. There is shame in the cross. In fact, the Old Testament says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. There's a shame to be crucified publicly, especially if you didn't do anything wrong. And you're there almost naked on this cross, beaten and bruised and nailed and made a public spectacle. There's a shame in that. Jesus disregarded that kind of shame. He didn't focus in on it such as a way to avoid it. Don't we try to avoid shame as people? Something makes us look shameful, we try to avoid that. We mitigate those things. We make ourselves look better. Maybe we toss somebody under the bus to make ourselves look better. We try to avoid shame. Jesus didn't try to avoid shame. He put his head down and he went headlong into it. This is our model, our example. When we go through these hardships, we do like Jesus did. We don't avoid it. We don't try to find a way around it. We don't try to mitigate our way through it. We duck our head down and said, Lord, give me some joy as I walk through this hardship. This is what Jesus did. It says here that he despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at that contrast. Because he ran the race, the finish line for him, the contrast between the shame of the cross and all of the humiliation he had to experience compared to the enthronement. Uh, Psalm 110, uh, 110 and verse 1, it says, my Lord, or, The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my throne until I make your enemies as a footstool for your feet. That was that finish line. Stephen, while he's being stoned, gives a vision of heaven. He says, I see Jesus at the right hand of the Father on high. He was given the name that is above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father in heaven. So what does that mean for us? He is at the finish line. He's already crossed the finish line, and he beckons us to come run to him. Like a runner, we Christians must intently focus on the goal of Jesus Christ. Keep running to him. Keep focused on him. Stop turning our head to everything else, because all that is just going to ensnare us and encumber us anyway. Let's keep motivated and run. Christian, it is too soon for you to give up. Keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as long as you put your focus on Christ, you will have the strength. 
I don't care what you're going through. You will have the strength and the grace and the energy that is more than sufficient to enable you to finish the course that God has laid out for us. That's what scripture says. We're runners. We're athletes. Athletes just don't sit. Bench warmers don't like to, to warm the bench. They want to get out and play. Put me in, coach. And here we are on this path. And three simple verses lays out some important strategies to win that race. And thanks to Christ, we have one. Run. Don't stop. Don't give up. Whatever you're going through, I know it's hard. I don't minimize that. I know the frustration is real. But man, by faith, you will win. Because Christ has won. Fix your eyes upon him and run that race. Amen? Amen? Well, let's pray, and then we'll transition to the Lord's Supper. Lord God, we thank you for sending Jesus, the champion of the faith, champion of the race. I'm grateful that you willingly took on flesh for us so that you can run the race that we should be running. And then he's the champion of it all, that he despised all that shame. He went through all that hardship as an example for us to run like you run. Help us, Lord, to take these simple strategies and put them into practice. When we feel like our motivation, our desire is waning, help us to look at the cloud of witnesses. Help us to train and prepare to lay aside encumbrances. Open up our eyes to the sin that's holding us back, O oh Lord. I pray, God, that you would help us to have that determination and that endurance and to keep us fixed upon your son who is at the finishing line, beckoning us come to him. We're grateful for these things, Lord, but in all of it, we need your help and we need your power. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.